The scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 23, 13 to 39. It's on page 828 in the Pew Bibles in front of you and will be on the screen. Please stand for the reading of God's word. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple... He is bound by his oath, you blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath, you blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by the heaven swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is God's word. If you can, go ahead and find your Bibles again and make your way back to Matthew chapter 23, the passage we just heard read a moment ago. If you're just joining us, we've been working our way through Matthew's gospel for some time, following the story of what God is doing to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven uh, through his eternal son, Jesus. And Matthew, along with Mark, Luke, and John, give us the true story of how God did that through his son. And we're in Matthew 23 this morning. Uh, Let me pray for us, and then we'll look at God's word. Gracious Father, we praise you for all that you are, for all that you do. Lord, we are but humble and unworthy servants, and yet through Jesus you call us children. God, we praise you for that, and we pray that as your children you would give us ears to hear your voice this morning. Lord, give us insight into your word, and may your spirit be at work to change our hearts as we look into it, to see you and to savor you more. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Less than two years ago, um, the town of Framingham made national headlines, uh, Framingham where some of us live, made national news when a nationwide meningitis outbreak was traced back to a pharmaceutical manufacturer in that town. Investigators discovered uh, that a batch of their steroid they had been producing had been contaminated with a fungus. And because of that contamination, the medicine that was designed to give back relief uh, from the pain, from back pain, medicine designed to, to relieve pain actually proved deadly for many people. Uh, to date, there have been 64 deaths linked to that contaminated batch and another 751 illnesses traced to that contamination. And with those contaminations, you can expect comes rather harsh condemnation of that company. The business has been shut down. Over 400 civil lawsuits have been filed against it. Uh, Several states have assembled grand jury investigations. The FBI has a criminal probe against it. And, you know, understandably so. That, That doesn't shock us to hear such severe measures being taken. We kind of expect that kind of harsh condemnation in these situations, the kind that's going to, to bring justice on the wrongdoers and, and that's going to warn others who might be tempted to use their product that, that it, it's dangerous. We want to send this strong message. You think that this product might help you, it could actually kill you. And so we have this harsh judgment coming down. Now, we often bristle at the idea of judgment and condemnation. Those are not two of our favorite words uh, for most of us. If you uh, want to kill a conversation or, or looking for a, an early exit to a party, bring up the topic of judgment, and that should probably you know, speed the process along. But when you think about 
those things, judgment, condemnation, when you think about that in light of these kinds of tragic situations, or, or you can think of other tragic situations, the, the persecution happening in Iraq right now, when you think about it in those terms, you realize that sometimes judgment is not only necessary, it's actually the most just and loving thing to do in that situation. Wrongs must be dealt with. Lives are at stake. In fact, if the authorities failed to deal justly with some of these situations, we would turn around and condemn them for not doing so. And so it is when we come to our passage this morning and we read what are quite possibly some of the harshest words uttered by Jesus. We need to keep in mind that what the Pharisees are doing is the theological equivalent of passing out contaminated medicine to God's people. They took something that was good, God's law, God's covenant with his people Israel, that he would be their God, that they would be his people. He gave it to them out of love that they might know him and know how to walk with him. They took something that was good and they contaminated it with their superficial and self-righteous religious system. Their extra commands and regulations, their duplicity, so saying one thing, doing another. In a word, their hypocrisy. They poisoned God's covenant with their hypocrisy. And Jesus is not shy about condemning it or exposing it for what it is. Last week, Lawrence walked us through the beginning part of this passage in in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, where Jesus addresses the crowds and his disciples talking about the Pharisees and, and how they should think about them. Now, the Pharisees we've met several times in the book of Matthew, but they were the key religious leaders over Israel at that time. People were following them. People were looking to them, taking their cues from them about what it meant to live as God's people. As Jesus even says himself at the beginning of chapter 23, they sit in Moses' seat. They are teachers of the law. And they saw themselves as the shepherds of Israel, as the guides, as the the teachers, as the fathers. And they looked good. Their system looked like it might really work. But the people who were authorized to distribute the medicine of God's word, were selling a contaminated product that could kill you in the process. And their poison, the poison of their hypocrisy. And that word we're going to see a lot in our passage. You heard it over and over as as Becky read a minute ago. But the word hypocrite comes, it's borrowed from the world of theater. So those who, who wore a mask and acted out in a play, they were called hypocrites in classical Greek. That was the name basically for actor. It's a very fitting name when you think about how Jesus applies it to the Pharisees here. There's something fake and superficial about them. There's a mask that covers up who they truly are and what they're truly after. As Jesus says in verses 3 through 5, for they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. 
In other words, they claim to be honoring God. They claim to be keeping his covenant. They claim to be the examples of holiness in Israel. But it's really about them. It's really about what you think of them. That's the essence of hypocrisy, of putting on a show, trying to look good on the outside when what's inside doesn't actually line up with what people are seeing. And so as we come to verse 13, Jesus turns his attention away from the crowds and his disciples, and he begins to address the scribes and the Pharisees themselves. The scribes were kind of a subset of Pharisee um, or could be a subset of other religious orders too. And, and he's going to, in addressing them, he's going to further expose their hypocrisy for what it is. And he does so in pretty much the harshest way imaginable. Uh, notice that in our passage, there are seven woes against the Pharisee. Now, when we use the word woe, we usually do so tongue-in-cheek. Kind of a woe is me, this is such a terrible day type thing. It's a lot stronger than that here. Uh, to, pl- to proclaim woe on someone is to curse them. It is to declare ruin and condemnation on them. That's what woe to you means in the Bible. It's, if you think about it this way, it's basically our passage is the opposite of the Beatitudes back in chapter 5. There, Jesus was proclaiming blessing on a certain kind of people. Blessed are those who, blessed are those who. Here, it's not blessing, it's curse. Woe to you who, woe to you who. And so, you know, this is a harsh passage. But it's harsh for a reason. These words are designed to judge those who are putting the lives of others at stake and to warn others not to buy into their system. Not to drink the poison, if you will. These woes are designed to expose the contamination that's in the Pharisees' teaching because it is offensive to God and because lives are at stake. And ultimately, what Jesus wants his people to see and to understand here is that a right relationship with the God of heaven does not come through all of these hoops and putting on a show. A right relationship with the God of heaven comes from taking refuge in his eternal son. That's the big point Jesus is trying to register. That's the true hope of Israel. That's the real fulfillment of their covenant. All the law and the prophets, the whole Old Testament was moving forward and pointing forward to the day when Jesus the Messiah would come and God would fulfill his promises. That's their hope and it's the hope of the whole world. But If that hope is contaminated with just a little hypocrisy, it threatens to shut people out from the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is exercised over that. And and he wants to register this warning. These seven woes give us what we can summarize as four warnings against the kind of hypocrisy that we see in the lives and the teaching of the Pharisees. We'll look at the first two together. The first one is, beware of the destructive nature of hypocrisy. Beware of the destructive nature of hypocrisy. Verses 13 and 15. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. 
For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Strong language. And Jesus begins these curses, these woes, by highlighting the very real danger and destructiveness of the Pharisees' hypocrisy. Instead of doing what they're supposed to be doing as teachers of God's law, in other words, pointing people to the one the law points them to, Jesus, instead of doing that, they were threatened by Jesus. They were threatened by this proclaimed Messiah. If he's the true king... That means he's in charge, and we are not. And they didn't like that. And so instead of pointing people to Jesus and opening the door of the kingdom through the proclamation that he has come, instead they're slamming the door of the kingdom in people's faces. Those who try and get close to Jesus, they're trying to convince them that he's a fraud. They're shutting people out. They don't go in themselves, and they try their best to keep everyone else out. They're pointing them away from Christ, and therefore they're pointing people away from God. And they are zealous in doing that. They are passionate about opposing Jesus. They would travel sea and land to make a single proselyte, a single convert to their religious system. But because in doing so, they're pointing them further from Christ, they're making, in, their, in, in Jesus' words, they're making their followers twice a child of hell as they are. Again, that's a harsh statement. That's not the kind of thing you expect Jesus to say. You know, we kind of have this impression of Jesus very often that he's basically a nice guy. You know, and, and if by nice we mean someone who is good and who always does what is right, well then sure. But if by nice we mean someone who never says anything offensive, who never does anything to hurt somebody's feelings, or, or who never tells anyone that they're wrong, well then, no. Jesus is not very nice sometimes. But he is holy, and he is righteous, and he is good, and he is loving. And that's why he cannot always be nice. If my kids are playing in the front yard, and the neighbor's dog breaks the chain and, and comes and attacks my kids, nice is not the word you're going to use to describe what I will do to that dog. Not because I don't like dogs. I love dogs. But because I love my kids and I want to protect them. And so sometimes love means you're not very nice. That's what Jesus is doing there. His zeal and passion for his people moves him to do what is right by condemning those who are in the wrong, condemning those who are going to get in the way and contaminate and poison his people and shut them out from his presence. He doesn't want to see that happen. Hypocrisy is destructive in nature. It leads you away from Christ. So how does it do that? Well, number two, the second warning, beware of the deluded nature of hypocrisy. Beware of the deluded, the delusional, the foolish nature of hypocrisy. And this is the next two woes in verses 16 to 24. Hypocrisy 
leads us away from Christ because it blinds us to the truth. That's how it works. So if you look at these next two woes, notice how Jesus exposes the foolishness and the blindness of the Pharisees and their hypocrisy. In verse 16, Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. The Pharisees are are what we might call detail people. They, They pay attention to the details, whether it's out of their fear of messing up or out of their hunger for power and control, they weren't satisfied just to obey God's law as he gave it. They, they wanted to construct an extra fence around God's law, some extra rules and regulations that would keep them from getting close to disobeying it. For instance, God's law says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you should not do any work. Okay, well, what constitutes work? How do I know if I'm breaking the Sabbath or not? And so the Pharisees developed this whole system of what constitutes work in their eyes and what doesn't, and then imposed that system on everybody else. Their interpretation, their extra rules, everyone was supposed to to follow those, or to take the example that Jesus gives here with making a vow or taking an oath. You know, I, I hope you notice the, the ridiculously cumbersome criteria of how to tell which oath is binding and which one isn't, which itself is problematic because why are you taking an oath if you're looking for a way out of it? I mean, just let your yes be yes, as Jesus says back in chapter 5. But they created this system. You know, if you swear on the temple, don't worry about what you said. But if you swear on the, the gold of the temple or something like that, you know, then you have to keep your word and so on. Now, their logic is, is terrible and, and completely unbiblical, and Jesus shows us that. But, but what's happened is that as they develop these rules and regulations and traditions about how to obey God's law, they became more fixated on the rules themselves, on their particular rules, than God himself. They were masters of detail when it came to their precise code. You know, this kind of vow is binding, this one's not. If you're going to tithe, don't just give your money. Give from all of your possessions. Go through your spice rack and give 10% of all of those too. Be that meticulous. 
but they were foolish to think that that's what it meant to love and honor God and to keep his law. They were blind. Notice the repetition of blind through these verses four times. Blind guides, blind fools, blind men, blind guides. They cannot see the truth of who God is or what he really calls us to. They are deluded by their hypocrisy. They didn't miss the forest for the trees. They missed the forest for the pine cone. That's how narrow their focus is. Yeah. Some of you are, uh, or some of our kids have recently gone off to college. Uh, some are getting ready to go soon. Imagine going through all of the meticulous paperwork that's involved in getting accepted by a college. You've got your application and all your references, and then they want essays, and there's deadlines, and you, and you, you give all of your attention to getting all of that lined up and perfectly right, and then you show up at the wrong university the first day for class. That's the basic effect of the Pharisees' blindness here. They've got an eye for detail on all the wrong things. They're missing the real point of the law, the real point of walking with God, honoring him, reflecting his character, the weightier matters of mercy and justice and faithfulness, honoring God as Father, which is something they can only do through relationship with God's Son. Now, we may not follow the exact same set of man-made rules when it comes to our efforts at obedience, Um, but we are pretty good at making up our own traditions, though, that that function very similar to what the Pharisees are doing. And often, it comes out of an honest zeal to walk with God. Uh, You know, for instance, you know, one of the things that we often do is, is we take a biblical principle, but then we reduce that to a single practice. So biblical principle, God wants us to spend time with him in his word. You know, think of Psalm chapter one, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law, he meditates day and night. Biblical principle, spend time with God in his word. Well, how do I know if I'm doing that? Well, okay, you better read through the Bible in a year. That's how you know if you're doing it. Or you better spend 20 minutes a day in prayer and Bible reading and go to church, and, and so on, or any other, you know, check box of what it might look like to say that I am spending time with God and his word. Now, those things are all awesome, wonderful, good things to do. But what happens is that so often we can allow ourselves to become more focused on whether we're keeping our particular rule about that principle, than actually focusing on the God all of that is supposed to point us to. And, and it, we like that because it, it makes me feel like I'm in control. I'm in control of my relationship. I can anticipate what God expects of me because I have the list and I have my pencil and I can mark them off and I can feel like I've done something for God when I'm just fixated on my list. And I could feel better about myself because I could tell this guy's not following the list. And and so we do this in our own ways. Our devotion becomes contaminated with self-righteousness. And so our hope, if we're honest, isn't really in Christ when we're living that way. Our hope is in ourselves. We become our own functional savior. 
That is the delusion of hypocrisy. That's the foolishness, the blindness of it. And left unchecked, that kind of delusion produces in us a duplicity, a a two-sidedness, a two-facedness. And that's the third warning. Beware of the duplicity of hypocrisy. Verses 25 to 28, the next two woes. And, And as I read these verses, notice the contrast between the outside and the inside. Jesus is making a stark contrast here, the duplicity of hypocrisy. Verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also appear outwardly righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. It's an uncomfortable fact that the very phrase Jesus keeps applying to the Pharisees here is one of the most frequent criticisms we hear of the church today. Hypocrite. You know, a few years ago, David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, uh, in their research on what young outsiders, people who, who do not you know, go to church or, or who are not part of a church, what young outsiders think about the church today. And they noted that 85% of young outsiders have concluded from their exposure to Christianity or to Christians that that Christianity is basically hypocritical. 85% of people's perception of the church is is what we're we're reading about the Pharisees and kind of like, yeah, you know, that's what people often think of us. And 47% of young people within the church share that perspective from their experience. We have to ask ourselves why that is. Why is that? Where does that come from? Now, some of it is no doubt a misunderstanding of Christianity or of, of you know, what it really means to be hypocritical. I mean, if your idea of Christianity is that Christians are supposed to be perfect and never make any mistakes, and yet you know a Christian, and so therefore you know they make mistakes, then your understanding of Christianity is going to be that it's essentially hypocritical. But that's not Christianity. That's a misunderstanding. No true Christian will tell you that Christianity is about my perfection. In fact, it's the absolute opposite of it. We are, we are a messed up bunch of people. The reason we need a Savior is because we do not have it all together. We are not perfect. We are a broken people who have, in God's mercy, been changed by Christ. And, and so that's not really Christianity. But we can't write off such a widespread criticism based on a common misunderstanding. We have to listen and we have to ask ourselves, where does my life personally contribute to that perception of hypocrisy in Christianity? Where do we as a congregation contribute to that perception that 
the church is basically hypocritical. And I think where it happens most often in our hearts, I know this is true of my heart, and where it happens most often in our churches is with respect to what this, these next two woes are talking about, with this duplicity, this two-sidedness, saying one thing, doing something else. And Jesus illustrates the true nature of duplicity in a pretty gross way when you think about it. The pictures he uses, you know, the, you know when I was a, a kid, I used to clean my dad's office. Um, my dad's an accountant, and we would go up there in the afternoon on the weekend and do the dusting and the vacuuming and dump the trash and all that kind of stuff. And my dad's business partner at the time had this mug that was always on his desk, and he drank tea out of it, like, you know, two pitchers a day or something like that, a lot of tea. The inside of that mug, which he never rinsed out, was black. It was nasty. No amount of scrubbing was going to change that. The outside looked white, but you imagine taking that out of your cupboard. You know, you grab the nice white cup and you look inside. I mean, it's just, that's the picture of duplicity in our lives, putting on a show and yet being corrupt on the inside. And then Jesus takes it to the next level with the contrast between a whitewashed tomb, you know, a tomb that's been kind of spruced up with whitewash, beautiful, perfect. But then you think about what's inside. It's decaying flesh and bone. It's, it's unclean. So also outwardly, you appear righteous to others, Jesus says, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's the picture of the Pharisee's life. That duplicity. As long as I look good on the outside, it doesn't matter how dark my heart really is. It does, as long as nobody finds out, I could keep doing this. But then, of course, what happens? Someone finds out. And all of a sudden, my hypocrisy not only destroys and deludes me, it begins to destroy and delude others. People who trusted and now are let down. The poison, the contamination spreads through our duplicity. And when we find ourselves drawn to that, because if we're honest, there is no one immune to this kind of hypocrisy, this kind of duplicity. It's something all of us struggle with in different ways. And when we find ourselves stuck in it, it betrays to us who our true righteousness is is really in. If I'm stuck in this duplicity such that I'm pretending and hiding my sin here while performing for all of you there, whose righteousness am I depending on before God? Mine. But if my righteousness is in Christ, if as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, to take our sins, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If that's my righteousness, I don't have to wear the mask. I don't have to put on the show. I can be honest when I mess up because we have a sufficient Savior in Jesus. And that, friends, is the antidote to the charges of hypocrisy and duplicity in the church. Honesty about our sin and our sufficient Savior, Jesus. So beware of the destructive nature, beware of the delusion, the duplicity. Finally, number four, beware of the desolating effect 
of hypocrisy. To desolate something is to ruin it. Beware of the desolating effect of hypocrisy. And this is the last woe in Jesus' conclusion in 29 through 39. The Pharisees who saw themselves as the keepers of God's covenant were in reality the culmination of everything wrong with God's covenant people. And that's what Jesus shows here in this final woe. Verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and you decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So again, they're doing these things that look great on the outside. They're honoring the memory of these fallen prophets, these prophets who, who spoke God's word to God's people, who called them to repentance when they were straying from the law. They're honoring their memory, but they're doing so with a kind of smug self-defensiveness. If I'd have been there, I would have listened. I wouldn't have done what our forefathers did and, and, and killed the messengers of God. Sometimes we're tempted to think the same thing. What would I have said if I were in the crowd before Pilate? Rescue him? Save him? Or would I have yelled, crucify him, right along with everyone else? My sin tells me the answer to that. And, and so they're trying to kind of defend themselves. But Jesus knows better than they. If you think about it, what is it that the scribes and the Pharisees have been hell-bent on doing for the last few chapters? trying to find a way to get Jesus killed. So they're sitting there saying, if, we had a me- if we'd have been there when the prophets were coming and proclaiming God's word, we would have listened, we wouldn't have killed them. And yet, here they have standing before them, not just a prophet, but the eternal son of God. And all they can think of is, how do we get rid of him? They betray their own guilt. That they are related to their fathers more than they would like to admit. As Jesus says, verse 31, Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. And then he issues his final indictment against them in 33 to 36. You serpents, you brood of vipers, How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you kill and crucify, some whom you flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. There's something very common about the problem of hypocrisy and what it does, the havoc that it wreaks on our relationship with God and our relationship with others. And yet this last woe shows us that there's also something very unique about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and and specifically what God does with it. There's something climactic happening in this passage with regard to their sin and the heritage of sin that lies behind them. 
the guilt of all of Israel in all their rebellion against God. In fact, the guilt of all humanity from you know, Abel, who was the first murder recorded in the Old Testament, to Zechariah, the last murder recorded in the Old Testament, if you go by the Hebrew order of books. You know, so from Genesis to Malachi, we might say, all of that guilt that's been building up and building up, it's been moving forward in history to this moment, to this ultimate act of rebellion against God in the rejection of his son. And so God is going to act in judgment. Now that his promised Messiah is here and has by and large been rejected, Israel's unfaithfulness to God's covenant is going to be called to account in a new way. It's caught up with them. And that's actually one of the reasons why Jesus came when he did. To rescue his people from their sin. To shelter them from the judgment that God is going to pour out on Jerusalem and Israel and all humanity. And we've been kind of caught up in the harshness of Jesus' judgment throughout these woes. But listen to the compassion in his voice in verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. That affection and compassion. You know, think of that picture. You know, what happens when, when a storm or a fire threatens livestock? You know, what does the mother hen do? Gets the chicks in and covers them up so as to protect them, even though it's probably going to cost the mother hen's life. It's a common metaphor in the Bible for God's care and protection and love for his people. And that's what Jesus longs to do for God's covenant people. That's what he's been offering again and again. Come find your refuge in me. It's what he did finally do a few chapters later when he died on the cross to shelter us from God's holy and righteous judgment against our sin by taking it in our place. As Jesse talked about, taking every evil, every wrong we've ever committed, all of the sorrow and suffering of all humanity who've ever lived on himself on the cross, along with the full weight of hell against our sin. That's what Jesus did. That's what he longed for Israel to come. Find your refuge in me. But now listen to the pain in Jesus' voice. As he continues, again in verse 37, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. The offer was there, and they turned it down again and again and again. Even though Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promises, he was the the protection of God's people, he It was the beginning, a new beginning of God's plan. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees blinded them and most of Israel to their only true hope. It 
ruined them. It desolated them. It left them bare. And that's what happened to Jerusalem. That's what Jesus warns them about. Jerusalem, the city, throughout the whole, well, you know, from about, you know, I guess, uh, what, First, Second Samuel 5 onward, you know, throughout so much of the Old Testament, Jerusalem was to the people of God. It was the picture of God's beauty and glory in the temple. It was God's special presence. It was the picture of God's rule over his people with the throne of David right in the heart of it. God is our God and no one will stand against him. And, if, you know, and so this Jerusalem, this stood for something. And that city is about to be laid waste within this generation because of the buildup of this sin. When you get into chapter 24, the next chapter, Jesus begins talking about that. The city lost its chance to repent and receive her king. See, your house is left to you desolate, in verse 38. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is here a reference to Jesus' return at the end of the age. He's done with this city and the role that it's played in God's story. Again, not because he's giving up, ultimately, but because he's fulfilling it. Everything that Jerusalem stood for, Jesus is, and yet they're not looking to Jesus for that. And so you see what's at stake. You see why Jesus is so adamant about exposing the Pharisees' contaminated religious system for what it is. Not because he's mean or cranky, uh, not because he takes delight in the sorrow of others, but because he loves us too much to sit back and watch us eat poison. He loves us too much. The destructiveness, the delusion, the duplicity, the desolation of that kind of hypocrisy, it's cancer, and Jesus wants to rescue us from it. But though it was too late for Jerusalem and many of the Pharisees in our passage, it's not too late for us. It's not too late for the man who's gone through the motions his whole life, going to church, serving on boards, but whose real God is the pornography addiction that he's nursed in secret all along. It's not too late turn from that hypocrisy and to trust Jesus. It's not too late for the woman who knows all the right answers, who posts all the right articles on Facebook, who can tell you exactly what's wrong with this world, but who has yet to see that she herself is part of the problem and that Jesus died not just for those people, but for her too. It's not too late. It's not too late for the jaded teenager who's burned out and and buried under the expectations of others, ready to hit the eject button on God because the concept of Christianity that they've inherited is this hypocritical show of all of these expectations and rules that are basically irrelevant to the rest of life. It's not too late to see Jesus for who he truly is. He's not the disappointment in your parents or the disappointment in your friends, the disappointment in your church leaders. Jesus is better than that. 
He's not calling you to try harder and do better and be good at least when people are watching. He's calling you to come with all your baggage and all your junk and to find your refuge in him. And it's never too late for those who have trusted Christ to ask God to show us where are we contributing to the problem. Where is the hypocrisy hiding in my heart, in my life? Show me, Lord. And I encourage you to ask that question this week. Not just this week, but make a regular habit of it. But ask it. Ask God to show you that. And if you want to get serious about asking it, ask your wife or your husband where the hypocrisy is hiding in your life. Ask your kids or your parents or your friends. What do other people see that sometimes our hypocrisy blinds us to? You don't have to pretend anymore. You can drop the mask. You can stop the show. You don't have to perform trying to convince everyone that you've got it together because we all know that you don't. And neither do I. But Jesus does. Jesus does. Find your refuge in his life for you, in his death for you, in his resurrection for you. Let's pray. Lord, what a painful passage to read and work through. painful for the memories it brings up of ways that we've been hurt by people. People who said they were following and honoring you and yet let us down. It's painful because it shows us ways that we're doing the exact same thing to you and to others. Lord, we confess that we are weak and sinful people. We confess that we so easily run to things other than you when, when our lives fall apart, when we're depressed, when we're down, when, our, when we're celebrating the good things in life, we confess that so often we take credit for it instead of giving the glory that you deserve. Lord, forgive us those sins. Thank you that Jesus is sufficient for our forgiveness. Thank you that we can be free, we can be honest, and that you've not left us to try and manufacture our change on our own, but that you've given us your Holy Spirit, you've given us your word, and you've given us one another. Lord, may we together as a family drink deeply of your gospel, and may it change our hearts from the inside out, God. And may that be a beautiful sign that you are God, that you are enough, that you love us too much to let us destroy our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.